0: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important events of the day within the framework of key Real Vision themes, whether it's macro, liquidity, market structure, or crypto, we cover it all. Hi, I'm Nick Correa for Real Vision. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst standing by for their market analysis. But before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and data on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. In Europe, the active case curve still hasn't peaked. While yesterday, the US set a new record for the most deaths in a single day. In New York, the active case curve has still not yet peaked. While New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has ordered everyone in the state to wear a mask when in public. It's not all bad news though. Globally, the growth of new cases is slowing rapidly and could even decline soon. And recoveries are steadily increasing, a promising sign. As of today, over half a million people worldwide have recovered from the coronavirus. A GMI analysis found that the U.S. has more critical care beds on a per capita basis than any other country. In other news, the U.S. Department of Commerce today reported that the nation's retail sales in March contracted by 8.7%. That's compared to February's data, and it's a seasonally adjusted figure. This marks the biggest month-over-month decline in U.S. retail sales since 1992. To make things worse, that wasn't even the bleakest economic indicator released today. U.S. homebuilder sentiment plummeted this past month, according to the NAHB housing market index. It went from 72 to 30, the greatest one-month decline in the 30-year history of the index. And now, let's get to some price action. For stocks, the U.S. market showed some weakness, while European equities plummeted. Meanwhile, U.S. treasuries are rallying, with the two-year yield hitting its lowest point since 2011. Bank earnings today came up short, with Bank of America, Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs all reporting a contraction of quarterly earnings of at least 45%, compared to Q1 earnings for 2019. Even though they record profits from sales and trading in this volatile market, the three banks had to set aside tremendous amounts for loan loss reserves, bracing for a market write-down of their balance sheet. Bank of America was down 6.4%, while Citi was down 5.6%, while Goldman actually ended up Perhaps because they do more investment banking than consumer finance, which seems to be especially beat down at this time. Now let's go to Ash and Roger for their market analysis. Ash?
1: Thanks, Nick. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. This is Real Vision's daily briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. We're here with Roger Hurst in London. Roger? Hi, how's it going? It's going all right, Roger. It's yeah. uh, not an easy day, obviously. Uh, you know, you said something earlier in a conversation that we were having. You said, and I thought it was so spot on and pithy. You said, "We're in the realm of the trader right now, uh, while investors are stuck in no man's land." So, as we look over the top of the trench, is this like the last episode of Blackadder? We're about to go over the top.
2: Well, it's if it's that no man's land is because we have had this incredible rally. But unless you're glued to your screen all day, every day, because realised volatility on the S&P is still up at 80 on a one-month basis, it's winging around, as we saw today. And on a daily basis, you could go through your stop losses. And so you need to be staring at the screens. And if you're not, if you bought it here, and this is a classic common or garden rebound of 62%, then we're nearly at the point where we roll over and die again. But maybe this is actually the time when it doesn't do that because of what the central banks have done, and we go to the all-time highs. I don't know. No one really knows, and this is why it's such a dangerous environment. So, if you're a trader, glued to your screen, fine. If you're an investor, patience is actually going to be a virtue here, rather than trying to chase, you know, this little bit of the extra part of the rally up until 62%. I'm just happy to stay stay out of that because it is
1: such a dangerous environment. Right. I mean, it's time for patience, unless uh, unless you get stopped out. You get liquidated, which is the point that you were alluding to. You know, one of the questions about whether this is a plain uh, vanilla uh, retracement uh, is, I guess, the, the question of what's happening actually in the real economy, right? So we saw retail sales numbers, industrial production, and the Empire State Manufacturing Index come out today. There's nothing plain vanilla about what we're looking at there. What are your thoughts on that?
2: They were, I mean, shocking in some ways. And I think that the, the most shocking one was obviously the Empire, but that's New York. And maybe that's you know just an indication of how bad things are there. Because I think it was expected to be minus 35, came in at minus 78, by far and away, the worst print we've ever seen in that. Yeah and the most interesting one for me was the industrial production because this data goes back to you know almost 100 years. Right. And it was the worst print since the 1940s since the second world war a minus 5.4%. Now this was only a bit worse than expected 4% was expected. Same with retail sales massive um, massive uh, decline 8.7% expected down 8 but still much much worse than any anything we've seen so i think there's two things that kind of grab me on these is one these are just huge real number uh, real world numbers although as i said before some of these are surveys and therefore the surveys themselves are incomplete in this sort of environment but nonetheless month on month these are absolutely devastating numbers when you look year on year they're not quite as bad so actually, if you look at some of these numbers compared to 2008, 9 they're not so bad. But this, in some ways, just shows you how sudden this has been for the whole economy. It's not been a death by 1,000 cuts, then a sudden explosion. It just suddenly came out of nowhere and has just whacked the market in basically four weeks.
1: Well, you know, that's exactly right. Um, spot on. Again, look, you know, the, the so, so the distinctions between those two series, obviously, the uh, Empire State uh, number is uh, is a survey. Uh, and that's actually looking at April rather than March. The other two numbers are actual data that are in right now. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, that March industrial production uh, number, minus 5.4%, is the worst uh, since the uh, end of World War II. And this is probably a frictional economic transition issue between a wartime economy and a peacetime economy. And this goes back, as you said, it goes back actually to tie back in with the lead to the First World War. The series name is INDPRO. If you go up to the St. Louis FRED database, uh, you can take a look at the St. Louis Fed FRED database. You can take a look at that Serious, and it's a striking vertical bar. It literally just goes straight down at a ninety-degree angle. It's something that I, you know, I've never seen before. Uh, and uh, when you look at when you look at the retail sales number, um, you know, again, a massive, massive decline. The only bright spot in that is food and beverage, which has surged twenty-five uh, percent, presumably from people uh, buying. Uh, things on a panic basis right and I don't I don't think panic buying is anyone's idea of a truly uh, of a truly good number you know the other thing that's interesting about this uh, Carl Riccadonna, who's the uh, lead uh, economist over at Bloomberg and I think was at uh, Deutsche Bank while you were there Roger uh, came out and said look the, the important thing to understand about this number is that the businesses it's, it's based on census data and the businesses that are probably most affected uh, are having the hardest time reporting so we may actually have drops in that series from the people who are worst affected affected by it. So, you know, boy, this is not uh, this is not a pretty picture we're painting here.
2: No, and it's it's you know, you can see that you mentioned that dispersion between the food and beverage but particularly the food and then things like clothing was down 50% and then large items which you can understand particularly on the large items. But this was down 8.7% despite that massive rebound in the groceries. So, mm. it's it's an incredible number. But then the other part of this is that we're almost got to this point now where we go, well, we know these numbers are going to be bad. And if they're really bad, well, what's the what's the difference between really, really bad and really, really, really bad? It's all bad. And then people will say, Well, the worse they get, the more likely we're going to get yet more of a bailout, the bigger bailout. They'll act right. again. Because so far the Fed has been doubling down and doubling down as it right. did last week with the 2.3 trillion. So I think in some ways that, that's where the market's got to. But the realization is that this is in for the long run. It's not going to be one month. And if it comes back to life, it's going to come back to life very, very slowly, having switched off the lights initially.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We you sort of talk about the the good news is bad news, bad news is good news scenario that we first uh, saw in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when we were talking about uh, Fed policy action when numbers would come in really dismal and people in markets, market participants would have an expectation that that was going to lead to further stimulus. It seems to me a scary place to be in many ways. Uh, the other thing you touched on was the uh, the notion of durable goods, which is an interesting question in the retail sales number. You know, one of the questions that economists often think. About in these kinds of shocks uh, is the distinction between demand destruction and demand deferral, right? So it sounds fancy, but it's actually pretty simple. You know, it means like if you're about if you're saving up to buy a car for a down payment uh, and your business is pretty stable or your job doesn't go away, uh, you're probably going to buy that car when the crisis passes. But there are a lot of places where you're simply just never going to spend those dollars that you're going to spend. Nobody makes a reservation at their local steakhouse, you know, to catch up on the sirloins that they missed. So. This, again, another you know, once again, an open question. How much of this is demand destruction? How much of it is demand deferral? Do you have any thoughts on that when you look out and think about it?
2: The question there, I think, is on how much is it um, balance sheet destruction at the household level? And all so far... The reason why the markets have reacted, apart from being a bounce from an oversold level, is that there is some expectation of the the monetary stimulus getting into the financial economy, not the real economy. You're hearing stories, I guess, in the US, we're hearing them in the UK in particular, that the real economy is just not getting the money. Companies are closing. These are not businesses which are going bankrupt, going into whatever bankruptcy laws they have. These are just family businesses which are stopping, and they will not come back. So that's demand destruction, because that's cash flow destruction. And that's going to be persistent throughout the summer, and maybe well to, well on towards the end of the year.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. You know, when you're a financial reporter, you uh, you tend to get people reaching out to you on Twitter or Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, telling you their horror stories about their inability, for example, to get uh, access to a program from their lender. And we're hearing a lot of those stories anecdotally, and the data is reflecting it as well.
2: And it kind of goes into as well, the, um, you know, I talked about it last week, but the the interview that Mike Green did with Raoul and he's already been being proven right in certain aspects, which is the whole concept of concentration. And you can see it with these new all-time highs in Amazon, new all-time highs in Netflix. And this is basically the big corporates are winning at the expense of the mum and pop store, the small family companies, et cetera. And this was a process that was in place already. It's been going for 10 years because of those central bank policies that have been going for 10 years. And it's now accelerating. And I guess the question is that for the economy, is it a good thing or a bad thing to have a few behemoths? and not the um the cash flow generation from the 50 to 70% or whoever they are in the small businesses and I, my own feeling is you need the small businesses the variety and the individualism which are going to probably have a much higher velocity of money than the big companies which have a much lower velocity of money as we've seen which is why productivity has been so poor over the last 10
1: years right it's such an interesting it's such an interesting point and an interesting open question I mean I tend to agree with you I think that to have a dynamic and responsive uh, sector uh, you need to have small businesses who are able to do things more dynamically otherwise you wind up uh, with the risk of moral hazard you know the other question from a macroeconomic standpoint is you have these issues about marginal propensity to consume versus marginal propensity to spend when you give uh, small business owners additional dollars they go out and they uh, you know they do a, they do a renovation on the family store they hire or an extra guy or gal to help them out on the weekends when business is growing they put that capital to use very rapidly that kind of efficiency and responsiveness is something that uh, is much more difficult for large behemoth corporations to uh, you know to do
2: yeah, and this is—I mean, there's, there's this sort of um, false altruism around the kind of both. There's this hiring going on, but the reality is that these these are companies which, you know, what is their main purpose? It's profit. They don't pay the taxes. Certainly not in Europe. These tech companies are not paying taxes. So these are companies which are getting bailouts from taxpayers that are not paying taxes, and this is at the expense of the man and woman on the street. And I, I just cannot—I cannot. Um, I cannot conceive of an outcome over the next six months in which this is not going to be taking away from the overall economic pie. It just seems unreal. Now, the question against that is, can the speed and the size of the response be sufficient? And I don't think it can, because I think the magnitude, and as we see with the data today, I think the magnitude is going to be of a level we have never experienced and are not anticipating, because I think still, The expectation is that this is a blip, a very vicious blip, but not something which creates a structural change in certain parts of the economy, which I think it will. Because when you get a system change, whether you get concentration like this and a system change from lots of small businesses concentrating into big businesses, that's capital destruction. It's demand destruction as much as it is advantageous to those one or two companies. You don't get smooth transitions. It's very rare. You can see it already in the slow death of the retail sector in Europe and in the U.S. and other areas, where we're seeing these shifts in styles and and uh, and and, um, and patterns. But these things are destructive before they become reconstructive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, not to not to turn too melodramatic a point on it, but look, if if we were able to plan. Uh, from a central economic perspective, the output of business demand supply—you know—we'd be living under a Soviet system. Like, there's a reason why the system works so well when it's distributed. It's because there's a price discovery mechanism. Supply and demand set the economic structures of the economy. People buy the things they want to buy. Businesses create the things they want to cre- that p- consumers want to buy. And it's very difficult to do that at the at the macro level. From a you know, the central bank is going to plan out the way that supply chains are going to work. It simply doesn't work. Now, look, there are some companies where they benefit from economies of scale, you know, I'm not going to build my own iPhone. Um, But the economy is driven by this balance. And it is something that is a question about when this gets thrown out of balance, when the scales get kind of tipped or shifted because there's there's an emergency response by the central bank or by fiscal policy. What ultimate effect does that have on the long-term viability and vibrancy of the economy?
2: When we saw this, I think it was um, Jonathan Tepper I interviewed over a year ago now, and he talked about this in his book, The Myth of Capitalism. Mm. And he said the problem that was already there, that had already beset a lot of the US and European economies is that we had too little capitalism, i.e. what we're seeing is already um, effectively monopolies, oligopolies, the big behemoths on a global scale that were squeezing out the smaller businesses, and therefore, we're seeing a lack of choice. So what's accelerating here is a move towards um towards effectively a loss of capitalism, now I'm not saying the end of capitalism, I'm just saying that the the fact is that the number of companies that we have as a choice is already diminishing, and this is going to accelerate it, which is exactly Mike Green's point. Right. and that therefore has got to be had negative connotations. Now eventually, when we come out of this, we will probably see legislation against that to try and reinstate some of the old economy back onto not a level playing field but onto some sort of playing field. But for now, you can just see it in this price action. It's quite astounding. And you can see it in the NASDAQ. I mean, the NASDAQ, I think it's up on the year now. It's quite impressive.
1: Yeah, you know, the other question for me is that it happens in a very unpredictable way. It's not the kind of thing that could ever be sort of computed from some set of numbers prior to it. Like, I'll give you like a silly example, right? Like, I bought a pair of clippers for 30 bucks and I've been cutting my own hair. Will I go back to the barber after that? I like him. He's a nice guy. But do I really want to pay an extra $1,000 a year when I can do it myself? It's something that if you'd asked me in December, hey, do you plan on cutting your hair in 2020? I would have said no. But it's a, you know, I guess the fancy word for it is is a computationally irreducible problem. There's no way that you can predict from the data where you're going to wind up and there's so many shifts that are happening in the economy that are like that and you know they they are almost invisible by definition so how how does uh, this turn out how does it shake out in June it's just it's impossible to say in many ways
2: but you also think maybe there will be yeah. You know, once we've got through this sort of peak fear, that will there will be a certain parts, quite a lot of the parts of the economy, where we'll go. You know what? Actually, we're back to normal again. I saw that there was some. Um, I think it's some cruise liners already seeing bookings picking up for next year. Now I don't know if that's Picking up from the destroyed bookings of this year, or right. picking, picking up year on, over year, but the point that a lot of people I think are making is we'll probably go out and have some binge shopping and binge expenditures. And even now, I'm talking about you know what will be my top three holiday destinations once we're out of lockdown. Now, I think there is going to be that element where the pessimism of the extent to which this will linger afterwards is probably excessive in some um, areas, but I think it's going to be I think it's going to be somewhere in between, somewhere yeah. in between enormous demand destruction that we can see happening on a month. Month-on-month month basis, and the not quite so dramatic demand destruction that's happening on a year-on-year basis. But nonetheless, maybe they're not quite unprecedented. But this isn't something which is a short-term problem with it, therefore a short-term fix. I mean, I, do you feel that people are, are kind of thinking, okay, we want to gear up when we come out?
1: You know, I, my answer is that we're probably looking at a complex all of the above scenario, and exactly what ratios those play out in. I mean, I'm thinking about what beach I'm going to go and lie on to recover from this, uh, you know, from this intense news cycle. So there's going to be some rebound, there's going to be some snapback, there's going to be some durable demand destruction, and then also the point I was making about the haircut. There's just going to be some things that we can't predict because it's a change in it's a change in paradigm. It's an actual shift in the way people do things. The reason I didn't cut my own hair, obviously, I knew I was going to save a thousand bucks, but. I go, I don't know how to cut my own hair. But once you actually do it the first time and it doesn't look so terrible, you go, Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And in what way does that metaphor play out for the broader economy? What are there things where people just go, you know, there's a New Yorker cartoon that's been floating around on Facebook? And the cartoon is a guy sitting in his home office, and the caption is, gee, I guess that meeting could have been a phone call. And, you know, the meetings that could be phone calls, we just don't know. And you don't know until, you know, you do the phone call and the business doesn't fall apart and everyone goes, okay. You know, from now on, that's probably a phone call. Unknown and unknowable. I mean, I think if you, your
2: haircut doesn't look like a complex one, so I can see why you could go back to doing it at home. Yeah. I think this is the thing: is there will be some things where we will probably, like you, have come to the conclusion of, you know, what I could always have done that myself, right. and and then there'll be other things where I will go, you know, I, I'm still not quite good enough. There are professionals out there who are better than me, so I think there, there will be that. But I think you're right; it's 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 that marginal story, and it's and it comes back to things like when we come out of the extreme lockdown. And we're probably going to go towards another three weeks, which is happening in Northern Ireland. So I think it's going to happen um, throughout the UK. But when we come out, we won't be going back to restaurants in the way that we were. And if we can go back to restaurants at 20 30 40% capacity, well, they're going to go under because they need to be, let's say, 70% capacity to make right. sure they hit margins, because the overhead costs are still the same. And I think that's the problem is that this will be a piecemeal um return to work. And I've sort of said it's a bit like, you know, we had the lights switched off, but it's a dimmer switch turning them back on. And we t- try and turn the lights back on slowly, and sometimes we'll have to turn them back down again, and then we'll turn them on again. It's going to be that sort of slow process. And that is a drag on cash flows. It's a drag on the economy. And it's a destruction to those future spending um e- expectations because with low yields. And cutting dividends is that whole pension story we've mentioned before, which that's going to get decimated in the short and medium term.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, um, you know, the, the question is, to what extent can small and medium-sized enterprises, family business, withstand that fiddling with the dimmer switch uh, when what they desperately want is for the for the switch to just get thrown and for things to go back on? And it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. You know, yesterday, J.P. Morgan uh, did their earnings call, and Jamie Dimon was talking about uh, what the phase, uh, phase shift coming back into work looks like for J.P. Morgan employees. And he basically said, look, this isn't going to be a thing where the Surgeon General or some authority figure says, OK, it's all over, everyone go back to work, it's going to be a rolling up effect where you're going to see incremental progress at the margin, and um, hopefully, we're going to see sustained growth. But the question is, and, and you know, I'm curious about your view of this, is small and medium-sized enterprises, can they withstand it?
2: I think the answer to that is, um, unless they can get hold of the loans, a lot of them will not be able to withstand it. Or if they were very cash-rich, i.e. they had their cash pot for a rainy day, but I think you know, most economies, you know, the Anglo-Saxon economists so the UK, the US, I think as with households, is the same with a lot of corporates. A lot of corporates basically didn't have large cash piles. And so everybody's been kind of on that edge of hoping and expecting that the cash flows that we've been used to for the last 10 years will continue. So I think that's going to be profoundly difficult. And, and the problem for a lot of corporates and a lot of households is that the magnitude of, well, the, the number of people who need to get hold of these checks processing that when the people processing them themselves, and I think you mentioned, it, either have outdated systems, or they just can't go to the office anyway. Everybody is in lockdown, including the people who are processing this enormous avalanche of requests for loans and assistance. That's a slow process. And when you factor in the attrition around that process, you have to factor in a very slow recovery. And therefore, you have to probably factor in a low level of GDP growth or rebound, not growth, but rebound from the hole that we're in at the moment, it's not going to be the speed that a lot of people think. And I think you can see this in some of the big leaders, Demon saying it from JP Morgan. The leaders of Singapore are talking about their rolling shutdowns. You're hearing it from people who are kind of, you know, they've got an interest for this to be a big, a very quick bounce back. But they're saying, it's not, we've got to be pragmatic. The reality is that this is slow. And it's going to take a lot of time to get back to normality.
1: Yeah. You know, and exactly to that point, Roger, um, there's an editorial. written by Mohamed el Aran in the FT, where he makes exactly that point. Um, you know, He makes two principal points. The first is that markets are offside uh, compared to the grim reality on the ground, which is something that we've been saying on this show and elsewhere on Real Vision. Uh, and second, that the snapback is too optimistic, another point that we, that you and I and Ed and Raul have been making for weeks. You know, And the, the quote here that I thought was interesting is, the cognitive gap reflects, in part, an inherent structural bias of markets to treat pullbacks as temporary and fully reversible. And this goes right back to the point that you were making—that this, uh, you know, that the idea is that that the line goes down like this, but it sort of stair steps up, and there's a lot of variability and bouncing and wiggling in that move upward.
2: But what if—and is sort of the devil's advocate. I believe in the bounces. I mean, I looked at a lot of these um, sell-offs, I mentioned them before, whether it be 1987, 2000, 2008, mm-hmm. 2015, 16, and 18. They all sold off and rebounded between mainly 50 to 62%, 76% in the garden of 2018 and rolled over. Mm-hmm. Now, those ones since 2015 give me some comfort that this is still probably the right model to take because at least two of those were a story about market structure blowing up. They sold off, rebounded, and rolled over. But what if, and you know, I talked about the speed of the economic destruction, but also the speed of the response and the side of the response. And so far, they've only gone for junk, and there's all that moral hazard. But what if we rolled over and they said, yeah, we'll buy equities. Watch your size? Because we're unlimited. Because what we're doing is we're looking at these markets, and we're thinking about them in the world of the active manager of emotions of, you know, oh, they, it got oversold by people who think things are oversold. And the reality maybe now is what if we are in a world where active is still in the dominant seat, and central banks the world over just go, yeah, we'll buy them. I mean, in in 1997, 98 when the Asia crisis was blowing up, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority went on the bid in the equity market in the midst of all that um, LTCM and Asia crisis turmoil. And they bid up every stock. The futures carried on selling off. And I did loads of, of um, switches out of stock into futures. The futures were 8% discount to stock because they bid the market. Mm. What if they do that here? All our models are therefore wrong. It goes back to you know the valuation models were wrong for the last 10 years because effectively, they were doing that That's indirectly. But what if they just do it directly, kind of theoretically illegally? But we also have to have that as something which could happen because they've done things which we would have never expected over the last two or three weeks, and they might do it again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And pressing for this uh, at the BOJ, at the SNB, we've seen this happen before, in my sense, is that the Fed will interpret their statutory mandate in the broadest construct and not worry uh, as much about the, uh, you know, about the strictures with asset classes. And look, I mean, they're into junk right now. So I think that um, all bets are off about what they would not do.
2: That's right. And I think you know, we, we, the way I'm still playing this is I expect it will roll over like the the other market structure blowups of 2018, 2015. Um, but we've got to keep our eyes wide open because, and this is what I think I said last week, that I would to buy this, I would wait till we make the all-time highs. Because if we make the all-time highs in the next two or three weeks, we know that central banks have, in the short term, unlimited firepower. But then it goes back to, have they got unlimited firepower over 10 months versus over 10 weeks. And you know, unlimited is unlimited. So I'm being a bit facetious there. But right now, they might have. But over 10 months, they might not. And this, I think, is going to play out over 10 months, either the rest of the year. And real economy, as we keep on saying, is not pretty. And I don't think that the man and woman on the street will allow central banks to keep supporting real assets when they're in this much pain.
1: You know, Roger, talking about real assets, another thing that I know you're looking at is the energy markets, especially the oil markets. You know, with the pullback in WTI below 20, what are you thinking about when you look at that space?
2: Well, the the one thing I've been staring at for the last um, 20 days, actually, is that WTI has tested the $20 level on about five or six occasions in terms of days. When you look intraday, like today, three or four times, it's got to around about this 1950, 1920 level. I think it got to 1920 today, with a low of 1927 about a week ago. Someone's defending that level. 19, basically 20 dollars, is being defended quite aggressively. So, for me, if we break down below that 19 dollar level, I think we'll have another waterfall decline. And I think just the reaction to the announcement of the cuts tells us everything we need to know. That's the real economy right there. That's what the oil price is telling us. It's not pretty. And therefore, the real disconnect here is actually between the oil price and the S and P. The S and P has massively outperformed the real economy, which we know. And can that persist? I don't think it can, um, which is why I think this is the rebound. But that's what I think the oil price is saying here. You know, we know that
1: that real economy destruction is huge, and I'm expecting 1920 will get taken out. Mm. You know the other thing that uh, I know you're looking at when you mention uh, the financial performance of equity indexes is the flow of funds with money markets. What are you seeing there? There's been some
2: huge inflows into money market funds. So Lipper do do this in sort of you know they do the analysis. And I think it was 680 billion went into money market funds in March. Uh, which meant that net inflows into bond funds. There's about 250 billion came out of other bond funds, such as government and corporate. But 680 billion, this, I think, is a record new high of inflows into money market funds. Now, eventually, that will get deployed. And the question, I guess, is, does that get deployed into the next sell-off? Therefore, we actually might find a reasonable bid, or will it start chasing the market? Or is it going to get deployed into things like the bond market again? If the bond market is seen as being being bid, i.e. caps on yields from yield curve control, then maybe the expectation is that capital gains on bonds with yields in the 10-year dropping from where they are now in the 60s down to zero and negative in the US. I don't know, but the current amount of money that's gone into money market funds, cash in money market funds,
1: is enormous. You know, for, for people who don't follow the structure of these markets as closely as you do, who don't follow the plumbing of money markets, can you give us a bit of a primer on what the importance and significance of that is, where that money is deployed to, and how it actually functions at the structural level? well really i mean in its simplest level it's a flight to safety it's a flight to
2: a flight to cash now in 2008 2009 there were issues where your 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 dollar was not your dollar it actually broke the system because there's the liquidity a, funding issues breaking that, the buck that we heard so that's much that's exactly it, breaking the buck and, and those issues, I think, have been covered by the fact that we've got this enormous amount of Fed liquidity that they've been looking at every single aspect um, of, of the liquidity. So, well, not some but the liquidity um, and repo markets, et cetera. So I think the money markets themselves are relatively safe, so therefore it's a genuine flight to safety, and probably that backstop from the Fed that we've been seeing throughout March and that's been getting bigger and bigger, has one of the reasons why people have felt comfortable with this. But that's money that will eventually come back into risk assets. Normally there is always a few hundred billion in these things anyway. It's a money management system, but right now that's basically people running for the hills. But it comes back to the market. How quickly? Well, how quickly I think will depend on on this longevity within the breakdown in the real economy data. And I think it will sit there for a while, because if we get into a deflationary environment as well in the short term, then money sitting at zero in money market funds is actually where people want to be.
1: Yeah. And I think if there's one place that the Fed's got your back, it's in money markets, right? The potential fallout for any significant uh, problems in money markets would be catastrophic. So, the liquidity facilities are going to be there to backstop them to whatever extent is necessary. Roger, it's been an eventful day. Any uh, final thoughts, closing takeaways?
2: Well, I'm still incredibly impressed by the dollar. The dollar's having a good day today. And rather than getting into the dollar bull and dollar bear camp, I just think that with all these facilities that we've seen from the Fed, the dollar should be a lot lower. With the ineffectualism of the ECB, the euro should be a lot higher. And yet, the dollar is still meandering around this 100 level on the DXY and versus emerging market currencies. It had a pretty good day. It's very close to probably breaking to new lows on the JP Morgan index. That's the thing that worries me most, is that despite all of these attempts from you know by the Fed doubling down consistently, the dollar is still only a couple of percent from those highs and at risk of squeezing higher, particularly in the emerging market sphere. And I still think that in this world where price discovery is quite difficult, you've got potential yield curve caps, you've got bids, in investment bonds, investment grade bonds and high yield bonds, maybe the currency is still the outlet where we see the real economy issues. If we've seen real economy issues, then dollar strength is the one we've got to watch for and worry about, because if that suddenly takes off, that's where our next leg lower in all risk assets unless there's a massive bid from central banks, but that's where it could come from. So that looks to me like the freest asset at the moment. And the dollar's consistency and persistency at these levels is the thing that worries me in the face of what the Fed has already done.
1: And what what role does the potential of fiscal policy to offset that play, do you think, in your view?
2: And I think the interesting thing there is that you know fiscal policy is still you know what we're talking about here is two trillion and there's 57 trillion in the euro dollar market, the market outside of the U.S. according to Rabobank, and it's probably actually higher than that with shadow elements to it as well. I think the biggest risk for the dollar is that the, the more the Fed is seen as the first mover, the more exciting the U.S. is as a place to go because everyone wants to buy Amazon and Netflix. If you're supporting the U.S. equity market, you're going to put money into the U.S. It's the milkshake theory of, of uh, Brent Johnson. So the big risk here is that the more that the Fed does to stabilize the global market, but particularly the US market, the more people who have any capital to put to work will put it to work in the US and therefore drive the dollar higher. So it's a really difficult tightrope for them. They want to get the dollar. I mean, I guess the best thing for them is to have a stable dollar at worst or a slow moving dollar. What they don't want is a disorderly dollar. So if the fiscal encourages money into the US and supports the US and the US dollar, as long as it's not a disorderly move higher, I think global markets can deal with that. It's the disorderly move we have to worry about, and I think we have to look at emerging market currencies. If they start to move aggressively, that's where the fear will come
1: from. Well, there's also a lot of dollar-denominated debt out there. And with uh, international trade flows collapsing, there's probably a a bit of a risk to, uh, or rather a, a desire to sprint into the dollar now while you still can at a reasonable level if the fear is that it's going to rise. Anything else you're going to be watching in the week to come? I think it's just funding levels, funding
2: spreads, they've been behaving pretty well because of what the central banks have been doing and what the Fed's been doing. But there's always the risk that if it becomes the real economy issue and the real economy, and again, this goes back to emerging markets, what we've so far seen is the Fed's done a very good job of making currency swaps for people like Swissy, for sterling, for the euro, for yen. It's all working very well is some of the more sort of minor EMFX currencies, the less well-known ones, well, I say less well-known ones, uh, the less kind of um, key emerging market currencies, if they start to show a lot of tension, then I think that's the real world economy. And I think the real world economy will spill over into the US as well. So despite the supports that we get, I do think that the real economy is where we get the next funding squeeze from. So far, the Fed has done a very good job of stabilizing it. But if everybody needs dollars, whether it be US businesses domestically or international businesses, then I think that's where the big problems come from. So far, very well, relatively well-behaved. TED spreads have come in, OAS has come in, and these um, three-month basis between yen, dollar, etc. have actually swung the other way. All that's good. They start to move out again. And I think that they will then we know that the
1: real economy leg is kicking in. Also very interesting points and definitely something to watch. Roger, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks to speak to you again.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.